Hey everybody, I wanted to use uh, the recent current events with OpenAI and Sam Altman's ouster there, at least as of this recording, as an opportunity to talk about governance. It often feels like a very unsexy topic, but it is super relevant, not only in the business world, but in the finance world. So on today's episode, we are doing a deep dive on board governance, how it's determined, and specifically some takeaways for how to think about you know, what's going on at OpenAI. Welcome to the Breaking Into Finance podcast. Let's dive in. First off, happy Thanksgiving to everybody. It's Thanksgiving week uh, for those celebrating in the US. And I am you know, hopeful that this is going to be a period of rest, relaxation, time for family with everyone. And then also, I, I thought this current events piece might be an interesting one. There's a lot of family conversations around the dinner table. I hope you'll tell people about you know the podcast about breaking into finance and what we're doing. I hope you'll share with your friends at home. This really does mean a lot. We don't have any advertising budget, so this is all word of mouth. And so you guys talking about it, sharing about it, I see it in the numbers. It's actually been amazing to see you know our monthly listeners you know effectively are doubling every single month. Um, it's been really cool to see that. If you're listening to this and you haven't already, you know, given us a rating or a subscription on on you know wherever you're listening to this, I hope you'll do that. It really does mean a lot for my continued ability to devote time to this podcast. Just seeing, you know, those numbers, and especially because I will never charge people for this content. There will never be kind of like a premium, you know, subscription to the to the podcast or anything like that. You know, the long run, you know, goal is is continuing to partner with with universities, to partner with, you know, financial institutions. And so having that, you know, proof point of listener base really is helpful for helping me continue to produce new stuff. Um, so let's talk about OpenAI and let's talk about governance. First, I want to talk about the importance of governance broadly, because it is particularly important. Well, it's important everywhere, but I think we're seeing a lot of breakdowns in governance in the startup world more often than we are in the large corporate context. And just to name a few examples, you know, WeWork, um, basically the, the poor governance structure there effectively, you know, allowing, you know, Adam to take, you know, significant advantage of what was going on there. And, you know, the company is now bankrupt and Adam's actually doing quite well. Um, and he's on to his next venture. So I think that's just like one example where, you know, for for him personally, and for what he's trying to pursue, you know, like we work still exists, like, I think he was actually largely successful with the product. But if you're going to be a venture investor, and you're thinking about investing in these companies, if you're going to be an employee who's working at these companies, who's going to get stock options, this governance structure is super important to you. And I think from an investor, from a value creation to the company perspective, I would call WeWork's governance structure, you know, not a success at all. Um, FTX, man, <laughs> another great example of poor oversight. You hear Sequoia, you know, the the best, you know, largest, most sophisticated venture firm in the world, pleading ignorance about all the things that they didn't know. But that's something that you know, if if you're on the board, you should be really focused on. Um, and then most recently, we've seen it with OpenAI. So first, I want to talk about the vanilla framework where you were always dealing with a for-profit company. OpenAI has a little bit of complexity there. And if you're just running a for-profit company, you know, what determines governance? What determines ownership? Is it the CEO? 
Is it the chair of the board? Is it the largest investor? Um, and the answer is actually none of those things. So the CEO is responsible for all of the executive decision-making at the company. The CEO has a ton of power, but at the end of the day, they serve at the pleasure of the board. So at any given point in time, the board has the authority and the ability to fire the CEO. So if you're the CEO of a company like Sam Altman was, if you are nervous about your position at the company, which is a CEO, a lot of people aren't, but you probably always should be, you should always be thinking about whether you are pursuing the things that the board wants you to pursue. And at a minimum, you want a majority of the board on your side. But that's not all. And why is that? So how does the board get determined? Like who, who are the board members at any given point in time? For the most part, the board is not this in and out fluctuating entity where board members can you know get replaced at any time or appoint, appointed at any time. The actual procedures through which board members are elected and their tenure for serving is usually determined in the articles of incorporation of a company. And so this can vary a little bit. I actually wanna talk about some interesting advice that banks give to large corporations to protect them and insulate them from outside antagonists. Um, but all you really need to know for now is that you know, the board you know, can meet you know, regularly and that, that is you know, typically there is a nomination and voting process on board members. But who votes on the board members? The answer is the shareholders. And so if you are dealing with any, um, whether it's an LLC or an S Corp or a C Corp, um, no matter the corporate entity, as long as it is a for-profit, that for-profit has owners and a majority of the owners have the ability to control the board. So if you own 40% of the shares of a company and somebody else owns 15%, then between the two of you, that's 55, that's enough. Um, you can, you know, if you're agreeing on a particular mission, you have the ability over time at the appropriate board meeting to vote out the board and replace them with whoever you want. So what's going on with OpenAI? Um, at any given point in time, the existing board that exists in this moment wields a ton of temporary control. And so in this particular context, the OpenAI board actually got whittled down over time. And the way it got whittled down was basically like, you know, some people just voluntarily left the board. So Will Hurd, as an example, is a politician um, who decided to run for office and as part of running for office, decided to leave his post on the board. Um, they had one other board member leave. And so that all of a sudden exposed, you know, OpenAI exposed Sam Altman to this concentration risk where all of a sudden the board only needed three people to form a majority of the voting shares of the board. And so absent, you know, a big shareholder meeting where everybody gets together, you know, and thinks about what they want to do, um, you know, the, the board for, you know, this point in time had a lot of authority. And so now I want to step back and sort of in that framework, just define that ultimately the hierarchy here is control ownership of the shares. So if you have a controlling interest in shares or you plus another party or plus multiple other parties 
can agree and collectively you own, you know, 50% plus one share of the vote, um, then over time you have the ability to vote out and vote in new board members and impose your board. Then your board can replace the CEO and the CEO and the new CEO can change whatever's going on in the company. So ultimately majority control is the, you know, ultimate ownership of the control of the company, but there is a trickle down. Um, next really interesting thing I want to talk about here is Microsoft has invested billions of dollars into OpenAI. I think it was 12 billion was the amount that they invested um, back in January. And they got 49% interest in the for-profit entity that is controlling all of OpenAI's operations. And so one question you could ask is like, hey, like Microsoft, if you're putting all of this money into this, wouldn't have been, it wouldn't it have been valuable to seek a control stake? Like you're already putting in 12 billion for 49%. What's another 1 billion? You know, just to just to get um, you over the hump, get you to that 50.1%. And in this particular case, the really interesting thing is that Microsoft didn't want regulatory scrutiny on this deal. First off, there is this huge, you know, there's been this huge arm race all year in large language models and AI, and Microsoft just wanted to pounce and they wanted to pounce today. And so in order to avoid a prolonged wait period, review period with regulatory bodies about whether this acquisition, because if it's 51%, that's an acquisition, was anti-competitive um, or monopolistic, Microsoft just said, we want the economic interest, we want the, you know, structural organizational partnership and, you know, sharing of information and alignment. 49% is fine. Like we trust your governance. And that exposed Microsoft to this really adverse outcome. Like when Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft and the rest of, you know, folks at Microsoft found out about Altman's ouster, they were livid and understandably so because he has objectively done an outstanding job building the business. And so you could argue, you know, for or against how he was doing relative to the stated mission of the nonprofit arm that controls the for-profit arms board. But in terms of like, was he, you know, growing AI as a company or open AI as a company? Like, yes, like, of course, like unbelievably so. Um, so that is kind of the calculus behind Microsoft's decision to only have a 49% stake in this, um, you know, this for-profit entity. I think one other consideration is that when this for-profit entity first got spun up, the way that OpenAI did this, because it initially existed just as a nonprofit. Um, so how did they do this weird dance and weird conversion? Well, the nonprofit sets up a for-profit company that it owns 100% of. So for-profit OpenAI subsidiary initially is 100% owned by the nonprofit. And so the nonprofit basically says, we have this technology, we have, you know, this, you know, we've done all this research and we want it to continue to grow. We want it to con continue to be for the benefit of humanity. But as a nonprofit, we don't have the resources to invest 
we can't attract like the donations from people to you know really scale this thing and give it the investment that it needs um building you know and testing and refining these large language models is extremely intensive from a cloud computing power perspective it's expensive from a talent perspective like these are leading ai researchers who could work anywhere you know in the world at any company they want and can sort of name their price in terms of how much they get paid and so if you're going to attract this premium talent then you need to pay them a lot of money and that's just you know kind of a reality of the situation for context my quick googling of the largest uh, privately funded nonprofits in the us i think united way is the first or you know whether or not they're actually the biggest they're huge and like everybody's heard of united way united way collected 4.7 billion dollars in donations in the last year that is a ton of money but frankly it's nowhere near the amount of investment that OpenAI as a for-profit has the ability to attract from investors and so that is a little bit of like behind the scenes, you know, if you're deciding like, should this thing be a nonprofit, should it be a for-profit? It actually has pretty important incentive differences for the company. If you are a nonprofit, then, you know, if you are making a product or you're selling something or you're doing these fundraisers where you're like selling goods, it's possible that just the sale of those goods can produce some excess, you know, money that you can reinvest into the mission of the nonprofit. Um, one example of this is literally like bake sales, like um, when nonprofit, you know, like organizations run bake sales, their goal is to on the bake sale, produce a profit, basically like bring more money in than it costs them to produce the event. But when you're thinking about the capital that a for-profit can attract, they don't even need to make a profit today. Um, you know, the, the for-profit entities can attract investment today on expectation of future profitability. And so that, you know, more often than not is, you know, especially in the fast growing space can be like 20, 100 times, 1,000 times, um, you know, the fundraising capacity in terms of investment than you could get just from pure profitability today. And so that was a little bit of the decision making. It was literally like, hey, you know, if we're going to do something that scales and becomes the leader and it's, you know, for the good of mankind, this is like good AI, then they need a lot of money to do that. And so that is a little bit of the thinking why that level of capital could only be raised as a for-profit rather than as a nonprofit. So that's a little bit about why, you know, the nonprofit organization that governs OpenAI might want to create this for-profit entity because they needed the capital. And it also probably explains a little bit why the nonprofit is perfectly happy and content and likely wanted to preserve a majority stake in OpenAI, which is to say, you know, they wanted final say of these things. And if, if the nonprofit gave up control of this for-profit thing that is part of them, then on the one hand, sure, that thing can scale, it can generate profits, and the nonprofit can, you know, accumulate those profits over time and, you know, use it for other things. Like, sure, but now, you know, their baby is kind of gone, you know, expanded beyond their control. So I, I suspect that OpenAI really wanted to keep, you know, majority of the equity interest in this for-profit that they set up, 
Similarly, I think Microsoft was very comfortable taking, you know, just a 49% stake, um, like wanting as much as possible, but not um, hitting the threshold for attracting, you know, monopolistic or regulatory scrutiny. So now the stage is set. We have this for-profit entity that is majority owned by, um, by this nonprofit. We have this dwindling board member uh, you know, threshold in the for-profit entity, the board of the for-profit. Um, by the way, Sam Altman is on that board. And so as a voting board member, he certainly wields a significant amount of power. Um, Greg Brockman is the chair of the board. The chair, you know, can set the agenda um, for, for meetings, but at the end of the day is still just one vote. And so um, as a board member, you wield tremendous power. But notably, Sam didn't directly own any equity in the for-profit entity. And as a result, his board power is fleeting because his ability to continue to serve on the board is at the discretion of a majority of the board. And the composition of the board is at the discretion of a majority of the shareholders. And so... Basically, what happened is Sam lost control of the board. Um, you know, he had some friendly board members leave. And I, I don't want to go so far as to call it a coup, but it sort of was. Um, there, there was this feeling among a majority of the board members at this current point in time that Sam was pursuing, you know, for-profit motives on OpenAI's behalf over and potentially to the detriment of the mission of the nonprofit, which was safe. AI over and above anything else. And that is a very subjective opinion, by the way, right? Like reasonable people could disagree with that. Um, and so that gets us into the mess where we are today. Um, we have a CEO who is tremendously successful, but doesn't wield any hard power over the board. We have a, um, the CEO is also a board member. Um, and so is a vote, but if, if, you know, the vote is, you know, he doesn't have the numbers, he doesn't have the votes, then, you know, it's a, goes to the majority of the board. And as a CEO and board member with 0% equity and no, you know, existing coalition that can, um, you know, replace the board in their favor, there's no real recourse there. Um, so that is some of the fascinating dynamics going on at the board of this for-profit OpenAI entity. I hope this was a helpful breakdown. I hope you found this interesting. And man, in terms of what's coming next, I think this is where we get to see, you know, exercising of the, you know, the soft power and kind of what comes next. And so insofar as you don't have, or, you know, as, as Altman doesn't have um, contractual, um, you know, legal authority over this entity. He has basically fostered this movement and groundswell of OpenAI employees who would rather follow him to be to Microsoft and be employees at Microsoft than continue to work, you know, at this new OpenAI under new leadership. And so, you know, some combination of the 49% investor Microsoft, which is like pretty powerful and influential, um, plus Altman, um, plus narrative. Narrative is crucial here. Um, 
is swaying, you know, basically OpenAI's entire operations of what's going on at this for-profit um, to go potentially to Microsoft. And Microsoft is in a very advantageous position here because on the one hand, they have the they already own 49% of this entity. So if that gets resolved, then, you know, great. Like, you know, I guess it's, it's not no harm, no foul, but it's like, oh man, like big learning. And now there's going to be a lot more focus on governance and on, on the board structure at this entity. But let's say Altman and, you know, 700 of the 750 OpenAI employees all move over to Microsoft. Now, all of a sudden, Microsoft is directly capturing 100% of the productivity of what these teams are producing instead of just 49% of the productivity that they'd be doing at OpenAI. And because it is just employee and like talent attraction versus an outright acquisition, that makes the, you know, monopolistic kind of like antitrust concerns. Um, it doesn't make them go away, but it makes the case a lot trickier and with a lot fewer precedent cases. Um, you know, if the government wanted to seek, you know, an antitrust, um, you know, lawsuit against against Microsoft. So a lot of this is still unfolding in real time. This is, you know, as of I'm recording this on Tuesday, uh, November 21st, but I hope this is a really interesting breakdown. If you like hearing more breakdowns of current events like this, kind of in the framework of kind of finance education and business education, shoot me a note in the comments. I love seeing it um, because I really, you know, I, I, I trust your direction in terms of what you want to hear for what I want to chat about. Um, anyway, hope this was interesting. Happy Thanksgiving to those celebrating in the U.S. Um, for those internationally, um, this, you know, I'm posting this uh, on Wednesday just because it's a current event. Um, there will not be a new episode on Thursday, and we'll look out to resume with our regularly scheduled content next week. Uh, thank you so much, and talk soon. That does it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember to check out our website, breakingintofinancepodcast.com, where you can submit questions, join our Substack to stay up to date on new content releases, and much, much more. We'll see you next time.